The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from John 11, 1-4, and 17-44. Please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with an ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went out and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who had opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away this stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, 
I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he heard these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. I'm Chris Bowen. It's good to be with you. It's, it's fun to look at this passage. Uh, it was an extended uh, passage, so Rob, thank you for reading that. Uh, but if, if you were tuned into the words, and I'm a visual guy, so it's, it's helpful always to see it on the screen, you find yourself just being drawn into this narrative and, and the heaviness of the situation and the grief of Mary and Martha just, just sweeping over you. And, and in that, you, you see what Matt noted earlier, that there were uh, questions. These folks had encountered a, a big life situation, and they they had questions. They, they had questions. They wanted to ask Jesus, like, where were you? Why didn't you show up? And, and that's something that, that all of us, in one way or another, can resonate with. Because ultimately what we find and what we uh, are drawn into in this passage is Mary and Martha's grief. They're suffering loss. They're enduring pain. They're wrestling through the realities of sin and the fall. And that is a universal experience. And all of us know it in some way, form, or fashion. And we have our own stories that we can share, but, but it's something that, 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 that grips us and causes our hearts to sink. A few years ago, I was uh, serving at a church in Chattanooga, and there was a young couple that I hadn't seen in a little while. It was an old friend, and so I was sending emails and text messages trying to connect to just see how they were doing. I wondered what they were up to because they hadn't been in church. Um, I, I finally got a text message back. This friend said, hey, let's go to lunch. I'd love to buy you lunch. I said, great. Just tell, just tell me where. I'll be there. And so as I was looking with great fondness to connecting with my friend, just wondering how he was, I was trying to fill the space with trust to not assume too much. And we sat there, and, and when we, uh, our meal came, he, he told me that the, the reason that he and his wife had not been to church in a while was that they were pregnant. And I thought, oh, well, how wonderful, how great. It is. Has your wife been sick? Has she just had an unusual, uh, an uncommon bout with nausea? And he said, no, that's not it. We commented how there were a number of families that were pregnant at our, at our church, and there were new babies, and, and they were just kind of all over the place. And he said, we stopped coming because we were pregnant. And, and I just looked, and I didn't understand. And he said, you see, the baby that my wife is carrying has a genetic abnormality that's incompatible with life. And so I invited you here today because I want you to do his funeral. And so all the sweet morsels that I was imagining for that meal, the taste buds went numb, and my heart sank into my stomach. 
and I looked at my friend and I heard about the grief and the anguish that he and his wife had been wrestling through after years of infertility and the, the being unable to conceive a child. They finally did and they watched their hopes get dashed as they found out that there was something wrong with the genetic code for this child. I sat there and words really weren't sufficient to communicate the reality of the situation. And I didn't want to offer what so many try to do in those moments is to, is to pre- present a platitude, as if in those few words I could make the pain go away. Somebody looked at my friend and said, I am so sorry, with tears welling up in my eyes. And I said, this is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. You see, all of us know a life and how things are not the way they're supposed to be. Our hearts have broken when a spouse has told us that they no longer wanted to be in a relationship with us. Our hearts have broken when we hear of a loved one, a child, a friend who has wrestled with some form of addiction. Or perhaps we hear a story of abuse, whether it be emotional or physical, that violated the innocence of someone during their childhood. We have heard and received diagnoses. Those things that we did not imagine would be presented to us from a routine checkup or an uncommon spot on our body. So when I talk about pain and when I talk about sorrow and we talk about Mary and Martha and them losing their brother, it's something that we experience and we know and we can empathize with. So often what happens when we encounter pain is we try to do one of two things. One, we avoid it. When I was coming here, uh, several folks said, you know, Chris, you're moving to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And there are certainly wonderful things about living in Hilton Head and in Bluffton, and it truly is a sweet spot. But what I have found to be true in that sweet spot is because of the beauty around us and the beauty among us, that what we try to do is hide our pain. And some of the ways we hide it is we try to avoid it. And we avoid it by being distracted with pleasure and entertainment. Or we simply seek to deny its reality and say that everything's going to be okay. We act as if it isn't there then maybe it'll go away. And so we try to avoid the pain. We also, some folks in our community will see going through very difficult things, and their goal is to knuckle down and to endure it. But so often what we see amongst our peers in this community is they're enduring this pain and this suffering and this hurt and this hardship, but they're enduring it without hope. So the reason we look at this passage and the reason we look at this question is because what it reveals to us and what it communicates to us is that we have a Savior in Jesus who knows pain and knows suffering. He has experienced the loss of one that the passage tells us in whom he loved, and he was moved to grief and to mourn and shed tears. But what we also learn in this passage is that he does not avoid the pain. He steps into the pain. And when he does so, he endures it and faces it, not without hope, 
but with a hope and a fulfillment of what God is going to do. And so as we look at this passage and we encounter this text, the goal is that we would learn what it means to be a people who don't avoid pain, but people who go through it, or perhaps through it with someone else, with the hope that we receive from our Savior. As we look at this, we'll see three things. What does it mean for Jesus to step into the pain? We're going to see how he does that in the first part of this passage. We're going to see what it means for him to show love and compassion for those who are going through pain. And then we are going to end with the one who endures and faces pain and suffering and sin and death headlong. And he does so with a resurrective hope. So first, what does it mean that Jesus steps in to our pain and suffering? We see in this passage, it tells us that Jesus is going about his business and that he's with his disciples and he receives word from Mary and Martha saying, the one whom you love, your friend, the one who you have had a special relationship with, the one who has provided a soft place for you to come and find comfort and, and refuge amidst escalating hostility in the community, this one is sick. And Jesus, if you would just come, if you would just show up, if you would just arrive at just the right moment, all those miracles, all those healings, all those things that we've seen you do, you can do for this one. So Jesus, don't, Terry. And what we find is curious to us. And it is curious because it's often what we have experienced when we've asked for Jesus to show up in our prayers and it says that Jesus waits two days longer. Jesus waits two days longer. What we maybe not see with just a casual reading of this particular chapter, John 11, is we don't see the fuller picture of John's gospel. In John 10 we find what was noted in a passage that wasn't read this morning, uh, that, that the Jews have been seeking to kill Jesus. That at the end of John 10, when Jesus makes certain claims about who he is, that he is run out of Judea by Jews who are hurling insults of blasphemy at Jesus with stones in their hands. And his disciples, those who are surrounding him, say, Jesus, you can't go back to that place. They tried to kill you last time. But Jesus is telling both his disciples and Miriam and Martha that, that I will go where the Lord has called me to go. And I will go at the appointed time because when I go, it is for the glory of God and so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He tells us that he is acting and his sole mission is for his father's name's sake that he would be known and that he would be glorified and the Son of God would be known. The Messiah, the one who had come, and that these things are done, as it tells us in verse 15, so that you may believe. So that you may believe. In Jesus, so that you may believe and have life, that you would believe that He is who He says He is. You see, what Jesus is doing is showing us that He is sovereign over all things. 
that death does not get the last word. That wherever Jesus shows up, that there is hope. Jesus is showing the disciples. And He is showing Mary and Martha that He is in control. Even in a dark providence from the Lord's hand, God is in control. You see, if God is not in control, if Jesus is not fully sovereign, then what's the point? If He can't do what this passage says He will do and does, then ultimately find we go through suffering and pain without hope and that it is meaningless. But Jesus is stepping into the face of that. And as He is stepping into the face of that, He is coming with words of truth. And he is speaking words of truth into this situation. And these words of truth, as he comes and he encounters Martha, as she has said, if you would have only been here. And Jesus says, Lazarus will rise again. And Jesus comes and he meets her in that place and he comforts her with words of truth, words of hope. And, and Mary or Martha replies, she says, well, well, Jesus, I know that already, of course there is a resurrection, of course, at the last day, but, but my grief is real. And as we see that, that Jesus comes with words of truth, he is trying to show Martha that not only is he sovereign and he is in control, but he is purposeful. That the whole point of this, that, that he is the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And do you believe this? The purpose is that folks would come to understand who Jesus is and what He has done. And that He has entered into the pain and He has stepped into that and He has come to bring hope. And He has come to bring hope, hope in a way that gives redemption to those who are suffering and gives the, the broken and the downtrodden and those who are under the extreme grief of sin and, and are wandering in the crucible of pain in the wilderness of, of mourning. They are coming and Jesus is stepping into that place and He is bringing these words of hope to say that He is sovereign and that there is a purpose. All things are working in accordance with those whom God loves and, and that He is bringing about this glory. But it's not just that He's sovereign. It's not just that He's purposeful. It's that He's good. And he has said, friends, there is a story that you are trying to write for yourself, but I want to write a better story. I want to write a story where things are not as they are, but they are as they should be. That death isn't something that we all know too true. That suffering and pain, that ailments and disease and heartbreak and cancer and, and all sorts of maladies that we have faced, that those things are not a part of the way God designed this creation. You see, we find when we read the beginning of the Bible that God creates all things by the power of His Word from nothing. And after He has created and worked His, His hands into things, He declares what He has fashioned to be good, to be very good. And what we find in Genesis 3, that when sin creeps in and doubt about God's goodness is sown in the hearts of Adam and Eve, that through that doubt and them questioning who He is, what we find is that sin comes in and it ravages creation. 
and that death is a product of that. Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. So what Jesus is coming is he's coming and he's stepping into this brokenness. He's stepping into this place and he's speaking words of truth so that Martha would hear them. One of the beautiful things we see about Jesus in this passage Uh, this passage is that his pastoral ministry is not one size fits all. You see, as he has come with words of truth, stepping into the brokenness, he comes showing love and compassion. He shows love and compassion to Mary. She is overwhelmed with her grief and she is home crying and there are others who have gathered with her and she hears of Jesus' coming and she goes out to meet him and, and she is weeping and she is sobbing and those around her are doing the same trying to console her and she goes to Jesus and then she takes him to the tomb she says Lord if you had been here my brother would not have died and what we find in this passage is something that stirs us it tells us that Jesus weeps And as I was thinking about this passage and I was studying it, I had to ask the question, why does Jesus weep? Why does he weep? He knows what's getting ready to happen. He knows that with the power of his word, he will say, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus is going to come out. If this is me, I've got a smirk on my face. I'm, I'm... that's probably one of the many reasons, infinite reasons why I'm not Jesus. <laughs> but I'm sitting there cracking my knuckles, getting ready to say, let me show you what I'm getting ready to do. But that's not what Jesus does. He is fully present and in that moment with Mary. But my, my offering to you this morning is this. He doesn't cry because of Lazarus. He, not directly. First, he cries Because of the way sin has ruined his good creation. You see, there was no space in God's creation for death. And Jesus is staring at a cavernous tomb, knowing that his friend is in the tomb, lying lifeless and wrapped up and has been so for several days. So much so that the passage tells us that there's a stench And it's the stench of sin and it's the stench of death that that is ravaging the good creation. And it tells us in verse 33 that when Jesus saw her weeping and he saw that the Jews had come and they were also weeping, that he was deeply moved. That word deeply moved in the Greek is translated, he was incredibly angry. He was angry indignant at the injustice of sin and how it had violated and taken away the life of his friend. And it says that he is moved in this sense and that he is shaking with a fury because this passage, this word that is used is incredibly strong and it talks about a bull snorting, ready to charge. And Jesus is standing there looking at death, knowing his loved one, having stepped into this pain, and he is feeling the weight of it. And in that moment, he is furious. Friends, we have a Savior who is furious at sin. 
And he steps into that space and he is angry because of what it has done to us. But not only is he angry, it tells us that the passage that in his spirit he is greatly troubled. He is stirred in his heart and in his spirit. And he is afraid. Why is Jesus afraid? Because I submit to you that as Jesus is looking at this tomb that has a stone blocking the entrance, that in his mind he is already beginning to imagine his death on the cross. You see, at this passage in John, what we find is that we are about a week to ten days out from Passover. That Jesus, having turned again to go towards Jerusalem, has passed the point of no return. That He understands the gravity of what it means that He is going to have to do in order to reverse the curse. In order to be the resurrection and the life, Jesus is going to have to drink to the dregs the cup of God's wrath and His fury over what sin has done and how it has ravaged His his good creation and those who bear His image and all the sin that they have committed and that Jesus is going to bear the shame and bear the fury of His Father. And that in that moment, He's going to be separated from him, and there's going to be this, this mysterious fracture for a, a moment within the Trinity and its perfect harmony of relationship to where the Father turns his face away from the Son because he has become all that he hates. And Jesus, in his heart, as he is encountering and wrestling through this, Jesus is afraid. Martin Luther said, no man feared death more because Jesus knew what it meant. You see, friends, what we're finding in this passage is that Jesus who steps into the pain, the one who, who shows us compassion, Emmanuel, God with us, has come down to do what we could not do, to live the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And that he is coming to identify with his people. A few years ago, there was a commercial. It was a Guinness commercial. It has some men in wheelchairs playing basketball in a gymnasium. The competition is fierce. Men are getting knocked over out of their chairs and they are hustling down the court and wheeling themselves and shooting baskets and jostling for position to get the rebound. All the while, a deep voice um, narrator is saying dedication, loyalty, friendship. And at the end, you see the game comes to a conclusion. And one of the men looks at the rest and says, you know, you are getting pretty good at this. And that the camera pans back and you see the rest of the men unstrap themselves from the, the wheelchairs and they stand up. What had happened is this man in the wheelchair, in order for these others to have relationship with him, to come and have a game of competition at his level, they had to become like him. 
And what we find in that is the glory of the gospel, that Jesus in his compassion, his love, has become like us. And though he goes to the cross and gives up his life, lying in the tomb for three days, like those men who unfasten the belt and get up out of that wheelchair, Jesus rises again. And Jesus becomes the fullness of the resurrection and the life. That Jesus is the one who redeems his people. The one who has come to make all that is sad come untrue. The one who shed tears causes all tears to cease. The one who endured the pain and the suffering of his sin triumphs and conquers over it. You see, this is the glory of the gospel, and this is really what our hearts are longing for. You see, we often can't put words to it when we're going through grief, but in this we find that we have a desire, a desire for something better, a desire for things to be the way that they're supposed to be. And what we have is a desire for Jesus to make things right. For this injustice that Lazarus has endured because of sin, when Jesus steps into that place and he says, Lazarus, come out. And he does, it tells us he's unbound. Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. You see, we all know the shackles of suffering. We all know the fierce and intense grip of shame. We know the struggle of sin and death has encountered us all, and we long for that day for a hero to come and liberate us, to slay the dragon. We long for someone to rescue us in that moment of despair. We have that desire. As C.S. Lewis says so wonderfully, this is a long quote, but bear with me. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it go, get snowed under, or turned aside. I must make it the main object of of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. You see, friends, if you have experienced the grace of Jesus, if you have trusted in him and believe that he he is who he says he is, then, then you have a responsibility to make the main object of your life to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus. And not only for you to do that, but to help others along the way do that as well. And that means that we go in and we speak words of truth to those who are suffering. Words of gospel truth that Jesus 
is victorious, that he has conquered the grave, that the great enemy, as it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been defeated. And that we stir one another up towards those things to look forward to that day when all things will be made right. There's a beautiful song that came on the radio when I was listening this morning. It's, it's one we've sung in our church. It's by Sandra McCracken, and she was going through some difficulties of her own. And in this song, she says, In the dark of night, before the dawn, my soul be not afraid. For the promised morning, oh how long, O God of Jacob, be my strength. And then she writes, We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and we will weep no more. Jesus who weeps, the resurrection and the life causes us to weep no more. And in Revelation 21, The Apostle John, who'd penned the words we've been looking at, pens this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. When I was sitting with my friend and he was telling me about the struggles that they were having, wrestling through this child that they were literally praying would live for 30 minutes. As they were wrestling through that, and I had offered to him my condolences and said, you know, this is not the way it's supposed to be. In tears and over food that we didn't eat, he said, you know, it's okay. Jesus is going to make it right. And in that moment, I thought to myself, oh, man of little faith. And I was encouraged by my friend who in the grip of pain and suffering unimaginable was focused on his Savior, Jesus the one who is the resurrection and the life. And so, friends, we have, I have one question from this passage for you today. Do you believe this? That Jesus is writing a better story? That there comes a better tomorrow where we will weep no more and we will feast in the house of Zion, that all that is sad will come untrue? Do you believe this? Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank you that you are writing for us a better story and that you are preparing for us to gather in your house. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would impress and embalm the truth of your grace upon our hearts. 
that we would know that whatever it is that we are going through, the pain, the grief, the suffering, the mourning, the struggle, the tension, Lord, whatever it may be at this moment, Lord, that you understand. And that, Lord, you step into that space and you show us love and you are pointing us to the reality that you are setting things right, that you are making them as they should be, and that you desire the flourishing of your peoples. Lord, help us to remember that you are sovereign and that you are purposeful and that you are good. And in that, Lord, you are calling us to trust you and to believe that you see what we do not. So, Lord, help our unbelief and give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear, Lord. And would you stir within our hearts a desire for that country that we have yet to experience, Lord, where faith becomes sight. Lord, where we suffer and sin no more. And in the meantime, Lord, would you give us grace for the fight and give us grace for the battle, Lord, that we would be a people who do not avoid pain, Lord, but we endure it with the hope that we have in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.